Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I am thrilled to have another episode for you today. Thank you so much again for listening. Today, I have with me my friend and esteemed banana costume wearer. I'll have to put that photo in the show notes. Stephen Shattuck. He doesn't really need an introduction, but we will give him one. He's the chief engagement officer at Bloomerang. I believe we met on Twitter and then we met in person at Cause Camp, which we were trying to figure out what year. And then we just, I just said a lifetime ago. Steven is a prolific writer and speaker, and he curates Bloomerang's sector leading educational content. And he hosts the weekly webinar series, one of the best in the business, which features the top thought leaders in the sector. Stephen got his start in the sector producing fundraising videos and other digital content for organizations like Butler University, the Girl Scouts, Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and the American Heart Association. Stephen volunteers his time on the project work group of the Fundraising Effectiveness Project, which you should all Google, and I will put in the show notes, and the, um, the study fundraising steering group at the Hartsook Center for Sustainable Philanthropy at Plymouth University. He's also an AFP Center for Fundraising Innovation Committee member, and he sits on the faculty of the Institute for Charitable Giving. So he knows a little bit about fundraising and giving. And Stephen's the author of one of the best books. It should be on every nonprofit fundraiser's bookshelf, Robots Make Bad Fundraisers, How Nonprofits Can Maintain the Heart in the Digital Age published by Bold and Bright Media, who also published my second book, and we love them. So welcome, Stephen. I'm so happy to have you here. This is so much fun. Thanks for having me. And I I found the banana, the aforementioned banana picture. (laughs) We'll tweet it out. March of 2019. It it feels like longer. Oh my, it was 2019? You were saying it was 2015. 2019. (laughs) Yes. Once again, a lifetime ago. I mean, all of that was a lifetime ago. (laughs) So let's just, let's hear about your, your story. How'd you get started working in the sector? Well, it's funny because telling this story really annoys my wife. Um, (laughs) So when she she hears these, these interviews and stuff, because she always wanted to work for nonprofits and does, she like aspired to it very early on in her, her college career. It's like, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to, I'm going to help nonprofits. I was like, okay, it sounds awesome. And then I was an English major and wrote a lot of like bad poetry and the crappy memoir that everybody, that everybody works on. And I ended up working at a, at a marketing agency that just so happened to serve nonprofits basically exclusively. And they made fundraising videos for things like 
end of year galas and we were doing direct mail campaigns. Like we were sending DVDs in the mail to alumni to get them to give like that was a long time ago. Wow. So forget 2019. DVDs in the mail. Yeah. It's, and it really worked actually. It, it might actually still work now. That might be kind of I bet it could come back. It could come back. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have a DVD player, but. Yeah. So you could fish one out perhaps. Maybe your computer. You could watch on your computer. Yeah, right. But that's how I learned the craft kind of in a roundabout way. And then met Jay Love years later and he was, he was getting Bloomerang going and you know, we kind of hit it off and working together at another company and became fast friends because we were both obviously had a, a heart for nonprofits. And so he said, Hey, why don't you come along and help me get this company going? And that was about 10 years ago, which is kind of hard to believe. So been here since basically the first month and it's been a lot of fun because I get to meet fun people like you and talk about fundraising and, you know, dress up in weird costumes at events. So it's been great. Oh, I love that. And you do so much work specifically on fundraising trends, fundraising data, things like the Fundraising Effectiveness Project, the Center for Fundraising Innovation, you know, the Institute for Charitable Giving. So we are going to pick your brain here. You know, you're known as this expert. What trends are you seeing right now? What do we need to pay attention to? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I've been keeping my eye on it almost since on a daily basis since the pandemic began. Because uh, you know, probably won't surprise you to hear that that our customers were asking like, "What should we do? What is what's going on? What are you seeing other people do? You know, should we be fundraising right now?" Was a very common question that I received in the early days of the pandemic, and you know that continued for a pretty long time after. Still get that occasionally, and from what we can see from things like the fundraising effectiveness project, like you mentioned, which is a collaboration between AFP and the Urban Institute and Giving Tuesday now, and a bunch of the software vendors like Bloomerang, um, Neon, Donor Perfect are all data providers. And then when you look at other things like Giving USA, you know, research that Adrian Sargent and Jen Chang put out, all those things basically. I've come to the conclusion looking at all the data that donors really respond in times of crisis in sometimes surprising ways, even when the economy is really tough and people are out of work and we're all quarantining and, you know, having to to get stimulus checks to make our rent, despite all of those difficulties, 2020 was one heck of a philanthropic year. We had increases in donations over 2019, the amount of donors, we had a huge influx of first-time donors, people who made their first gift in 2020 who had not given to those nonprofits previously. And the really interesting thing, Julia, is that looking at the 2021 data, which is still kind of coming in, right? We're recording this in early February, 2021 seems to have been a continuation of 2020 which I know that that's true in a lot of different ways, right? It feels like it's still March 547th or whatever that date would be. But donors haven't stopped, you know, and donors said they were surveyed, you know, Cygnus Research surveyed donors halfway through 2021. And they were like, yeah, we're going to keep giving. Like we might even give more than we gave last year, which was an increase over 2019 already. And if you look back on, 2009, 2001, like the dot-com bubble, all the way back to the 80s in every weird economy or, you know, disaster or 
you know, strife that, that are either locally or the entire planet is going through donors step up and the nonprofit sector is pretty insulated. Now I don't want to make anyone listening feel bad because I know that there are a lot of nonprofits that had a horrible, tough last couple of years. You know, I'm thinking about like performing arts nonprofits and like my heart goes out to you. But what I want those folks to hear is be encouraged because you have a great case for support. And there's a lot of generosity out there, not to mention a lot of capacity, you know, thanks to the sort of capitalistic society that that we live in, which is unfortunate. But if you ask, by and large, people will give. That that is the biggest takeaway I, I have taken away um, since the pandemic began. And we've seen this not just through Bloomerang customers, but like I said, broadly through a lot of this other research that has come out. So what do you think differentiated people that raised the money in 2020 and 21 from people that didn't? So this is interesting because we looked at this, at least among the Bloomerang customer subset and not every nonprofit, you know, in the world uses Bloomerang. So take this with at least a little bit of a grain of salt, but there were two big things that stood out, especially in, in 2020 and kind of the early days of the pandemic. First was, was that they asked, like they literally didn't stop sending emails direct mail campaigns. And we can see that right amongst our users just by looking at the data and kind of the back end of our software. But more nuanced was even among the folks who asked for money, there was a little bit of of bifurcation. The folks who asked and also sort of contextualized their need within the pandemic, in other words, how they were affected directly, they raised more money than folks who did ask, but didn't mention the pandemic, didn't, you know, talk about all the ways that they have been impacted. And maybe they weren't, you know, there were perhaps some organizations that weren't impacted by the pandemic, although I, w- I would imagine that'd be a pretty small group. In general, again, if you are in crisis, if you have a shortfall, if you have a big project, or if, you know, you've changed your, your programs and services because you can't, you know, operate in the way that you were pre-pandemic, Again, donors tend to respond to that increased need. The second thing, and this is something that, you know, I I wrote my book pre-pandemic, but it was kind of edifying to see this actually take place, was this concept of personal outreach. I think what happened is because of the pandemic, and you and I were talking about this before we hit record, people were quarantined, people were feeling isolated, people were feeling powerless, right? The organizations that reached out personally, made phone calls, made wrote personal emails, right? Rather than sending a bulk email out of MailChimp or a constant contact or whatever, you know, opened it up Gmail and wrote one email to one donor or one monthly donor. We saw a real strong correlation, not causation necessary, but a strong correlation between the organizations that were raising more money in 2020 than they did in 2019 they were doing those types of things, making phone calls, reaching out. And I think it was because some of the people on the other end of those communications, that may have been one of the few pieces of contact that they received from any human being, you know, maybe other than close friends and, and relatives. You think about, you know, the average age of, a, of an American donor, which is, you know, a, a person, you know, above 60 or 65, 
that outreach, I think, was probably really, really well received in a time of extreme isolation. And again, we have seen this continue through 2021, even though we aren't necessarily as isolated now, thankfully. I know the pandemic isn't totally over. I don't mean to say that. But this concept of personal outreach, it may also be, it's, you, you said it, you know, things coming back, maybe it's just this digital overload that we are bombarded constantly by mass emails and impersonal communications from robots or from mass marketing. You know, people give to people. And when people are reaching back out to say thank you or to tell a quick story or, you know, show interest in the donor, like, hey, you know, thanks so much for your giving. How did you hear about us? You know, why do you care about clean water in your community? Like, we'd love to know your story as well. That has always been a winning formula for fundraising, right? But I think it was turned up to 11 during the pandemic. And those are definitely two things that we saw strong correlations with those organizations that seem to be having some of the best years ever in 20 and 21. I heard Lynn Wester speak recently, and she was talking about the concept of agency and how during the pandemic for her personally, it made her feel a little bit more in control when she could give to the causes she cared about. And she saw that with her clients. And I saw that with mine too. Donors were reaching out and saying, I'm glad your doors aren't closed. I'm glad you're still here. I'm glad to know that this cause, you know, you're working on a cause, a solution to a problem, addressing a need in the community. And people are glad to see that you're not closing your doors and you're not shuttering your organization. And it gives them a feeling of power. We don't talk about that enough, like how good we feel when we give and we feel like we're we're creating change in the world, even if it's $5, $10. So absolutely. In, in a world out of control, donating may be the, the only bit of power that you could reclaim. And to have that acknowledged, you know, personally after the fact, that's a that's a winning combination. So yeah, I and you know, we're both parents and just like it, it's so hard for everybody in a lot of different ways. Yeah, donating may be the only way to to feel like, gosh, there's something I can do. I can't change what politicians do and 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 you know, I can't control a virus out of control, but by golly, this this museum is not going to go out of business or this library is not going to close its doors. And dang, these, these kids still need after school meals and I can help with that. And I think that's why if you look back on any period of crisis compared to the for-profit industry, the nonprofit sector really weathers those storms quite well. I think it's because there is just a natural generosity amongst our population and our culture that I I don't think that gets celebrated, you know, nearly enough. I just love that. We still are not cynical yet. We might be Gen (laughs) X, but we're not cynical. You're Gen X, right? I'm like, I'm a, I'm 84. So I'm a cusper. Oh no, you're a millennial. Well, I'm, isn't it? It doesn't start at 83. I, I, I thought I tell it started you, I, at 1980. I mean, who knows? I, re- I didn't have a cell phone until I was 20. I remember <laughs> AOL DVDs in the mail and or discs. So I, Millennials I, I are like, very dark, though. They can be dark. I know. Yeah, we came out of college right before that, uh, that crash. That was a, a great start. 
<laughs> exactly. So actually, it's interesting because in your in your book, which I know was released pre-pandemic, you know, robots make bad fundraisers. You wrote that in some ways we're in a golden age of fundraising, but also that fundraising performance has stagnated. So what did you mean in that context? So the first part, kind of what I meant was that, you know, I, I've been at this technology company for, for over a decade now, and just the, the advances I've seen, and I don't mean our company, I mean the entire technology sector that serves nonprofits. I mean, you can do amazing things. You can send thank you videos that are like super high quality, you know, within seconds, you can A-B test, you know, anything you want, an email, a donation page. There, there are donation page, you know, widgets that'll, you know, suggest certain gift amounts, depending on who's looking at them. There's so many cool things that we can do that even five years ago, let alone 10, you know, either weren't available or were too expensive for kind of that average, you know, small to medium sized nonprofit. That's the other thing. The costs have come way down, which is really cool. But I think that there's kind of a double-edged sword with some of those things because they tend to be very digital in nature, just good, right? It's that barrier to entry of giving is way down. You can become a donor very easily, easier than, than ever in, in the, you know, the planet's history, which is great. I think what I'm concerned about and what generated the book or the idea for the book was that a lot of times communicating with those donors is very impersonal, right? It's very robotic. You know, it's, it's automated receipts that aren't really a thank you. Sometimes we don't even get the donor information. You're lucky to get an automated thank you at all. Exactly. (laughs) Absolutely. And so with all of this technology that oftentimes seeks to automate, right? Rather than sort of supplement the work of a fundraiser. That to me is, is what is concerning. And, and we see this in the data, even data that's come out after the book, which suggests that the one thing that, that I really see this manifest is first-time donors. You, know, you think about the fact that it's never been easier to give. I mean, you can go to Facebook and click one button and be a donor, which is good for a lot of reasons, but it's very often difficult to communicate with these people. And my concern is that a lot of the vendors kind of respond to what they see in the sector. We're all overworked, we're underpaid, we're understaffed, we're just trying to get through the day. And a lot of vendors will come in and say, well, we'll, we'll save you time, right? We'll automate all that stuff so you can worry about other things. And my response to that very often is, well, wait a minute, what are those other things? Because What are those other things? Right, because that, that, that's high ROI activity to take time to call a donor and say thank you, right? And I've got a, a mountain of research that says that that is really, really effective. Penelope Bark says that too, I remember. Absolutely. For decades, people have been saying this, and it hasn't changed. In fact, I think it's, it's gotten even more effective because of all those impersonal communications, not just from nonprofits, but from, from everyone, from for-profits are probably the, the biggest culprit of this. So when I kind of coach people on technology purchases or adoption, the litmus test is, is this going to help me build a personal relationship with a donor? If that is in the cards, right? And some donors don't want a personal relationship. You know, when I when I donate to my college roommate's peer to peer campaign, 
that's not the same, right? Because I'm supporting my buddy. I'm not supporting that charity that they're raising money for. So also understanding that distinction is also really important. And that's a very new concept in terms of online peer-to-peer fundraising, which isn't totally new when you you know think about maybe memorial or tribute gifts. There's a, there's a through line there. But again, looking at that pandemic data, it was those organizations that were reaching out personally. And if that gets automated, like, oh, I can just set it and forget it. Like, you know, the software is going to email my donors and it's going to send a, a seven touch drip campaign. And it's like, well, that could be good. But if you haven't made that personal connection, I think that you may be disappointed in, in the, the, the results of that automation. So that really at the core is what the book is about. And you're right. I wrote it pre-pandemic and it came out, I think, maybe July of 2020. And a lot of that ended up coming true, which I was sort of proud of, but also a little bummed out about. (laughs) And now a word from our sponsor. I'm here to tell you that this podcast episode is sponsored by my newest free training, Social Media in 20 Minutes Per Day. This is where I give you my exact framework and process to schedule and organize your time so that social media does not take over your entire day and to-do list. Watch the replay for free at socialmediain20, that's 20, the number's 20.com. And be sure to tag me on social to let me know what you think. That's socialmediain20.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy. No, it's still incredibly, incredibly pertinent because I actually believe that, and I know you saw this, that the pandemic increased the reliance on automation and digital tools and, you know, people working virtually, people not being able to be in person, not being able to have those events, those donor lunches, those touch points, those tours, parties, Mm -hmm. exactly. So I completely, I think this is made even more relevant. I just thought of an interesting question that I don't know if you have the answer to, but is there data on whether like Facebook fundraising, Instagram fundraising has had an effect on donor retention data? Because I would imagine all of those people giving $5 on Giving Tuesday, but then you don't have their contact information People know how I feel about this. You know, it's a double-edged sword. It's like you talked about. But I think that could have an effect on donor retention data, but I don't know. Maybe there's a new study coming in that. Maybe a new study coming there. I think you're onto something because that's the prevailing theory, at least, right? We don't have a lot of data. And I I talked about this before, but I I didn't finish my thought. I just realized the first-time donors, the retention rate there is now below 20%. So eight out of 10 first time donors. Yeah. And it's been falling. It was 25% five years ago and it falls about one or two percentage points every single year. Now I will put that right up against the rise of things like what you're talking about, peer to peer Facebook fundraising, which I agree. I don't have a bone to pick with those channels. I think they can be really useful, but I do think that they're contributing to that low retention rate. But it's okay a lot of times. What I tell people is, because we'll get messages, people are upset they don't get the donor information, right? Or the retention rates from a peer-to-peer campaign are poor. 
And I say, it's okay. And I'm the retention guy, right? So we're recording this. So it's like, there are some donors that you're not going to retain. And that is okay. When someone donates to their roommate, college roommates 5K, they aren't supporting your nonprofit. They're supporting their college roommate, you know, their, their drinking buddy on the weekends at, at, at Ball State where I went, right? Or whatever. That is free money. All of the angst and all of that consternation over not getting the donor's contact information, what I tell people is ball up all that energy, turn it into gratitude for the fundraiser who raised that 500 bucks or 200 bucks on their birthday or on giving Tuesday for you. You want to make sure that they get soft credited. If that's what makes sense in your database or just properly appreciated for raising that money because their college roommate, they ain't going to give again. Right. But you want that fundraiser, the person that is the raving fan of your nonprofit to go out and raise money for you again on their next birthday, on the next Giving Tuesday, or when you're having a, a day of giving or a capital campaign or whatever, fundraiser retention is now a significant thing to be thinking about as channels like peer-to-peer and social media powering you know, some of those donations becomes more and more prevalent. So I think that we will probably continue to see that first time rate slip and slip as more people, because don't forget more people are donating thanks to these channels. So that is, you know, a good thing for the sector. And if we have to perhaps stomach lower than average donor retention rates, you know, that may be a fair trade-off. Although, you know, we've had some customers that have done some very creative things to get those people to give again. For example, you know, have the thank you come from the fundraiser. You know, hey Julia, thanks so much for supporting my my 5K or my birthday. Do you remember when Josh did that? Exactly. That was the model, right? The the problem is when it's the nonprofit swoops in and is like, hey, thanks so much for donating. And it's like, what? Who are you? I, I donated to you. But they need to be reminded. Thanks so much for supporting my my fundraiser. This is the nonprofit that I chose to raise money for. You may not have realized that, but I really believe in them. This is a cause close to my heart. And I would appreciate it if you considered supporting them again in the future. Without that bridge, right? It's really, really hard. Because we trust our peers. We don't trust institutions. So when we say Josh is our friend, Josh Hirsch, he, he does social media director for Susan G. Komen. So he's actually a seasoned fundraiser, but he did a personal fundraiser for his birthday and everyone that donated on Facebook got a little personalized message and it was really nice. I'd never seen that before. It kind of blew my mind. And I thought the potential here is so great because I did get a thank you from Komen as well, but getting that thank you from the person that I donated on behalf of was so much more impactful. And I love what you said about take that ball of angst and refocus it. How about refocusing it on maybe your monthly donors or those? I love this. I say it all the time, the hidden gems. I remember you talking about the hidden gems in your database, trying to cull out who are some interesting people that you might want to call that you might want to make that deeper connection with. But 
what are some ways that you think fundraisers can use these tools and use this technology to keep more of the donors that they have to build these connections? Well, over and over again, the research says that donors want to be thanked and they want to know the impact their gift makes. Now, there's a lot of smart people talking about going overboard and you absolutely can, you know, you'll want to get into this area of donor worship or, you know, ceding too much control to donors. But I think that you can say thank you and report on impact in an equitable way. And so when you are, you know, taking demos or considering software tools, the question that I recommend people ask is, is it going to help me do that? Is it going to help me thank donors, you know, in a personal way for those hidden gem things like you mentioned that they do because the people that give to you are very diverse and they give for different reasons and in different ways. And then is it going to help me, you know, tell that story? That's why I love some of these products that, that, that let you send thank you videos and, you know, let you make like on-demand annual reports that are really beautiful and rich and tell great stories that's the that's the technology that that I get really jazzed about, and also you know things that make online giving really seamless for people because that is such a growing channel. You know, it's still small, but it's growing for sure. And dang, I've been on some websites where it's just like I, I cannot donate. I, I don't even, I don't even know where to put the thing. Like it's not taking my my information. Like I can't. Where am I? You know. So that to me is like the barrier or the bar, right? If you set it there. You really can't go wrong, but it's it's the things that worry me. Like we're gonna we're gonna take the fundraising activities out of your hands, and we'll do it for you, so you can do other things. And it's like, well, what are fundraisers gonna do if they're not doing those those things, right? So donors are kind of simple. They want to be thanked, and they want to know what what impact they're making because that was their hard earned dollars that they gave. And could have done something else with. And, you know, they're also passionate. They want, for all the reasons we've said before, they want to have some impact on the world and feel like they're making a difference through the work of the nonprofit. And nonprofits deserve a bulk of that credit. I don't want to cede, you know, that control all, all to the donors. But if I'm donating to get a story about, dang, this is a kid that went through our program and now he's the first kid in his family to go to college. And it's all thanks to, you know, donors like you support our, our work to make that happen. That I think is, is something that you can do and that donors will be receptive to. I absolutely love that. I love that so much. I think that there's just so much potential to use these tools for good, to use these tools, to improve the world, to spread the mission and to really showcase impact. And I, I get frustrated when, you know, I know that development officers and marketing officers are stretched to the brink and they are, they have a million things on their plate. You know, you've been there, I've been there and we understand that, but it just seems to me like thanking a donor in some simple way is just the most basic it's it's just polite. First of all, (laughs) it's just the polite thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's like, I don't know how you were raised, but I was raised to say thank you, but it's not necessarily deferring control. It's just saying, I really appreciate that you took the time out to think of us. And here are some of the awesome things that we're doing. And we're so make it more like a, a partnership, you know, joining a movement 
investing in something, investing in a better future. So I love that. What do you think are the trends that are, are happening in this next year? Like as of this recording, where's fundraising going? I know that's a huge question, but what are some of the things you're seeing? One of the really good things to come out of the pandemic, and I really want to couch that statement because it was it's it still is very terrible for a lot of people, but accessibility, you know, this uh, virtual events and hybrid events, I think is, has been really, really good for the sector. And I feel like it's going to be hard to unring that bell, right? When you've made those experiences and those stories so accessible to people who maybe couldn't join you in person, even pre-pandemic. I think that's been a really, really good thing. And I, I see that continuing, honestly, you know, the, the nonprofit sector is so full of people that have just awesome hearts and, and really care about their fellow human beings. And, and I, I think that we'll continue to, to make those things accessible to people. And there's just been so much creativity, you know, uh, necessity is, is the mother is the mother of invention even when it's, you know, a, a terrible pandemic that generates those things. And I really think it, it shook some people out of, you know, we've always done it that way, or we've, we've always done that gala, you know, for 40 years and everybody dreads it every single year, every single time that it comes up that, that month, but by golly, we're going to do it because we've always oh, done it. And then it they made three time. times more just by sending a mailing or an email. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Or by opening up to live streaming or whatever. So I, I think that a lot of people kind of got the chance to step back, reevaluate, challenge, you know, existing norms and the way we've always done things. And I think that that innovation will, will really carry through. I, I, I don't know if it's exactly a trend, like you said, maybe it is, but just it really shook things up. And I think that we'll see a lot of, a lot of creativity. And people are so willing to share what's one thing I love. And I try to platform that as much as possible, you know, cool things that they've tried, even if it failed, you know, it's still always good to, to learn from those lessons. That's what I'm really excited to see come out of, you know, over the next maybe year or three years are all those neat new things that, that people are willing to try that maybe, you know, 2018, 2019 would have been too afraid to do so. Wonderful. Well, on that note, where can people learn more about you, learn more about Bloomerang. Where can they watch these fabulous webinars that you do every month? Yeah. Bloomerang.com. Every week. We got to have you on Julia. It's been too long. We're gonna, we'll it has been. Too. I think, I think I was on pre pandemic talking about oh, man. the future of your nonprofit future proof, your social media. Well, we will remedy that because we need people like you share that advice. <laughs> um, but yeah, every Thursday at Twitter is a good one for me. There might be some, Red Sox tweets in there that are a little, little, little sadder, but I'll also put out some, some good research because all this stuff that we're involved in, you know, I, I, I would try to shout from the rooftops as soon as it comes out. LinkedIn is, is good too, but yeah, pretty easy to find in general. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being here. I know you're a very busy parent, busy volunteer, busy researcher, writer, and maybe if you'll share some of that poetry, we can put it up and. Oh, I'd have to dig that out of the archives. It could be, <laughs> could be embarrassing, but I'll try to find it. The banana oh. picture will be enough. <laughs> yes. The banana picture. Okay. So yes, go to nonprofitnationpodcast.com and you can see the photo of Steven <laughs> in a banana costume, which was so funny. All right. Well, thanks so much for being here today. I appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for doing this. 
I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. But until then, you can find me on Instagram at Julia Campbell 77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn.